Hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. It is July the 3rd, 2011. I just did that in my head. I hope you're all doing very well. I'm sorry for the last two weekends, which I know were a Nazgulian, Stygian abyss of uh, philosophical bereftedness because there was no Sunday show, except for James, who I believe did a great job. And uh, I'm going to give a, a chance to review those, heckle him appropriately, and we'll probably put those out. So thanks, James, for taking over and rendering me entirely redundant. Thank you to Sovereign Curtis, uh, to, um, uh, to Chris Lawless, uh, to Adam Kokesh, and to Carla, uh, the Queen, for the invitation and uh, thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable uh, it was a great time at the Porcupine Freedom Festival. Strongly, strongly recommend that everyone come down to that. It was incredibly family-friendly uh, this year. Uh, fortunately, the Kids Interactive Fireworks display was not put out this year. Instead, they had a bouncy castle, which I believe thoroughly a step in the right direction. So uh, really, really strongly recommend it. Uh, it's just great. I mean, I, I particularly loved seeing the children there. Uh, these were the nicest kids that I've ever met. I mean... To the point where my daughter is playing in the in the playground, and there are you know six year old boys uh, helping to org- spontaneously helping to organize the swing rotation among the uh, younger children in a very path, helping them on and off the swings. There was there was no pushing, there was no grabbing. Uh, every kid that I met was alert and and smart and and wise and kind. And I just really really wanted to thank the parents, which is a ridiculous thing for me to do, of course, but I'll do it anyway, to thank the parents for the wonderful work that they're doing to to have these amazing kids come into the world. And uh, so uh, kudos to the parents and uh, just a wonderful time. Thank you so much for the organizers for having me down. Uh, if you want to check out my um, <laughs> attempt at a Come to Jesus speech, which I think came off fairly well, you can go to fdrurl.com forward slash pf2011 and... Um, I check out my speech, which I did after the roast. Thank you also to the roasters who did uh, some <laughs> made some wonderful jokes. Uh, surprisingly, at my expense, I wasn't I wasn't aware that was going to happen, but uh, I struggled through. No, it was really really enjoyable. Uh, I had a, a real blast, and thank you everybody who put the time in to come up with some seriously funny material, uh, and uh, thank you everybody who who worked on that. That was uh, a, quite a lot of fun, and uh, I hope to be on the uh, giving rather than the receiving end next year. Uh, to just about everyone. So uh, I hope that you will uh, come to Porkfest uh, next year. And uh, for those who, I guess the more than 1,000 people who came, uh, thank you so much. Uh, it was really, really great to meet everyone and uh, really, really appreciated the conversations I had and some truly fantastic food. Minor news update. The case against Dominique Strauss-Kahn seems to have hit a bit of a hurdle. And since I had talked about him briefly before on the show, I thought I'd give you uh, an update um, his uh, accuser's credibility appears to be taking a bit of a whack uh, in that uh, she said to her boyfriend in jail, a convicted drug dealer, which of course doesn't mean much to an anarchist, but means a little bit more to the general population, that, uh, don't worry, he's got lots of money, I know what I'm doing. And there seems to have been some uh, hits taken to her credibility. He's now free without bail, which compared to the, what was it, six million or something that he had before, uh, five million that he had before, and ankle bracelets and ferrets attached to his jugular, uh, should he ever move outside of a small radius, uh, that was a pretty considerable change. Uh, I don't know what conspiracy theories are floating out there. I'm sure there's there's quite a few. Uh, But um, uh, there's been no contradiction of some of the physical evidence that they found semen in the uh, hotel room and so on. So maybe he did have sex with this woman. Maybe it was consensual. Who knows? Uh, If it does turn out that he had sex... Uh, consensually with this woman who then turned out to be, I guess, a bit of a troll. You could you could put it that way. I think it just falls into the uh, um, 
Julian Assange school of, uh, you know, it's not usually a good idea to bang people you don't know. Uh, it's just uh, you can get some socially transmitted diseases like um, massive cave-ins from the U.S. legal department or massive cave-ins from other legal departments in England and so on. So it's usually just a good idea. You know, word to the wise, don't go around uh, uh, being a man whore and banging people you don't know. Now, of course, there's times where people's identity should remain a mystery. I mean, obviously, if you're role-playing with your wife or or your fiancé or your girlfriend, you know, you're up in the roof. One of you's on a sas- in a Sasquatch costume. Nobody knows really who's under the Minnie Mouse mask. So there's times where I think it's highly appropriate, but I think uh, strangers in hotel rooms, not usually the best approach for maintaining your liberty and credibility. So just a word to the wise, uh, I wanted to, uh, to sort of pass that out. A wee reminder that the barbecue uh, is happening end of the month? End of this month is July. So July, the weekend of the end of the month. You can go to amiando.com forward slash FDR2011 for more information. We're actually going to hold it at the hotel because... Um, there's too many people, I think, for the house, and we also want to make sure that darling Izzy has some space to have her naps and isn't overwhelmed by the mass uh, in- influx of, uh, of great listenership. So we're going to have it actually at the hotel, so make sure that you check there. Uh, so again, it's amiando, A-M-I-A-N-D-O.com forward slash FDR 2011 for more information about the barbecue. Please, please sign up over the next few days because uh, otherwise, I mean, you're welcome to drop by. You just may not get much food because we have to start ordering and preparing everything uh, for that. So uh, just it's a listener appreciation. We, you know, there's no charge for entrance, no charge for food. We just want to uh, meet and greet everyone to say thank you for all of your support and uh, have great conversations. So I hope that you'll be able to come by. The hotel's on a beautiful location. Uh, there's, uh, you know, rolling plains outside. There's a river nearby. It's a really nice place. Uh, and uh, so, and rain or shine, uh, we're, we're set for the location. So I hope that you will join that. Uh, last mention for Liberty Fest 2011. I will be speaking with uh, my betters uh, around as well, uh, Tom Woods, Adam Kokesh, and others. That's in New York, September the 20th. Uh, September the 20th. That's somewhere between 11-1 and September the Blue. September the 10th, uh, 2011. Uh, I hope that you will uh, come by. And uh, I guess the Liberty Cruise is now sold out. So that won't be occurring. But you can, of course, check me out and, of course, others at Libertopia, uh, Libertopia.org, which is in October in San Diego. So I hope that you'll be able to join us there. I think that's it for news and business. Uh, I wanted to actually... Uh, just uh, we've got some friends visiting. Uh, you may know them if you have listened to Free Domain Radio for some time. They have shown up in a wide variety of podcasts, um, notably because they seem to have hacked the um, the password to the website. And I don't know, they've just done some freaky stuff, but they've done some great work uh, in the conversation philosophically and in the pursuit of self-knowledge. Uh, it is Greg and Charlotte, and um, they are going to get married. In September, and uh, we're going to be thrilled to be there. And uh, they have very kindly agreed to move their marriage date to September 11th, the day after my family is uh, in New York, because they found that um, they wanted to have that anniversary for reasons I can't quite understand every single year. And uh, also, they found that um, marriage halls were substantially cheaper, I think, <laughs> on September the 11th, particularly if in high towers. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's enormously thrilling. I think they're going to talk a little bit about how philosophy has affected their relationship and their journey because you could really count Freedom Domain Radio as about the um, the toughest dating site <laughs> in the known universe. And uh, I think it's just perfectly thrilling. And uh, we've had a couple of other marriages um, 
Rodzilla, who you may remember from Podcast Pass, has also been married. We have another listener who's on the tech team who's getting married in September as well in New York. And we're all perfectly thrilled about all of that. So it's just great to see uh, all of this uh, love is in the... Anyway, it's all just great to see all of this sort of stuff. And so since they're visiting, I thought they'd uh, be uh, asked them if they'd be kind enough to share a few thoughts. And uh, so I'll turn the video off and we'll go on. Uh, with the show. But if you're watching the video, you can, of course, listen to uh, to the podcast. This is the Sunday show for July 3rd, 2011. And uh, I guess we'll turn it over to Greg and Charlotte now. So, go. Yeah, so um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about um, uh, how philosophy got you here, uh, if it's had much influence on your relationship, if it's been mostly an impediment you'd have to get over, and all that kind of stuff. Um, do you want to go first or, uh, so, um, uh, I guess a little bit of history first. Please, yeah. Um, uh, I mean, I knew Charlotte from the boards. Um, this goes back to 2007, 2008. Um, we weren't really friends, um, but we interacted a few yeah. times. Acquaintances, right? Um, and sure. And, um, so, um, yes. So I, I I don't know what to say. Um, Um, I'll let you go. Sure. So, so we knew each other, but it's, it wasn't with, uh, with any kind of degree of, of friendship. You know, we, we'd had kind of a, a mixed experience of each other, I think, um, where we were both in a place where, you know, we, we just weren't ready to, to have any kind of a, a relationship, whether really friendship or, or anything else with anyone. Um, and that I think is, is what philosophy has really helped with. I mean, I was in this, this kind of, I don't know, I'd, I'd found objectivism when I was 11. I was kind of in this, this John Galtian, uh, you know, man in the woods type. I don't, I don't need nobody uh <laughs> type of modality for uh for several years and you know through through FDR and and interacting with so many great people on the boards i just found that you know actually it's i think that it's it's much much better to be in any kind of uh a relationship with people um it just helps you kind of see yourself um, and philosophy helps you see yourself in a way that you know you're you're not able to uh, without the the introspection that needs to go on throughout this process. So I can safely say I think that you know with, without philosophy I would not be probably marrying anyone, much less Greg. And even more of a journey for Greg. Right? Yeah. Just make sure I'm holding that right. Oh. Sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, yeah. For me, um... monastic. Monastic. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Um, like seriously monastic. Um, ph- philosophy for me was, oh, um, uh, it, it was, it was a way of sort of hiding from people. Um, you know, uh, you could, you can choose your philosophers based on your temperament, you know, and, um, there are a number, um, who will, help enable the sort of um uh isolated lifestyle and for me that was uh nietzsche and uh, i think bertrand russell a little bit and oh uh, sorry <laughs> um this just um anyway um 
so part uh, part of this uh, the the biggest um, benefit from philosophy for me, at least genuine philosophy, has been the um, the focus on honesty as a virtue, but primarily as a um, as a tool for understanding yourself, right? Um, it's it, it, telling the truth to other people isn't what honesty really is. It's <coughs> telling the truth to yourself. And for a long time, uh, I wasn't really doing that. Um, uh, I desperately wanted friends and desperately wanted a relationship, but I kept telling myself that that's not what I wanted. It's not what I wanted. It's, um, uh, something to be afraid of, something to, um, be wary of, uh, people are dangerous, people are scary, but those are all projections, you know, of, uh, what I grew up with, which was dangerous and scary people. Right. And, um, so for me, the arm of philosophy that had the biggest, the most significant impact is uh the the self-knowledge arm the psychology the introspection <laughs> they uh, the slowly learning to be honest with myself and not not imposing sort of um uh, I, an identity or um a set of preferences on who i am but trying to detect what those were in like in 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 sort of like the discovery sense right and and acknowledge them and and treat them with um um respect and um and it's it's kind of hard to describe sort of in broad strokes but um uh, uh sort of through this process, um, I, uh, I had corresponded a couple times with Charlotte, um, when I was living in Raleigh and I desperately needed a job and she had found a lead for me in Brooklyn. And, um, it was, um, it was, it was originally a tough decision for me to make, make the move cause it was pretty scary, but, um, having done so um she was just amazingly generous and helpful and um just a really great friend um an amazing friend to me and and so through the through that in, that introduction and um through my time in new york and um getting acclimated and um, at the time we spent together, um, I just, I got to know her more and more and understood who she was more and more and just really, I kind of liked it <laughs> and, um, uh, just my sense of like just admiration and respect for her just kept expanding and expanding to the point where, uh, it wasn't an, it was not enough for me to tell myself well we're just really good friends right like 
we go to, we go to restaurants and talk. That that's all it is, right? <laughs> it flies me with liquor and <laughs> exactly. There was a bag of ferrets one night. Um... <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, it, I kept just trying to tell myself that, and it just the tension get kept escalating around that, and it's like it. I kind of semi-consciously realized it was more than that and uh much more than that and um but it was so terrifying to me to think that it could be more than that because um that's it's such a i mean uh, it's such a defenseless position to be in you know to say to somebody you know, wow, I really think I love you, you know? And, um, actually, Charlotte kind of greased the the track a little bit for that. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I, I think that, that that kind of generosity and that kind of vulnerability mm-hmm. is something that I had never experienced before, you know, either in myself or in others. And, you know, kind of uh, philosophy and, and working through this process, which is was what made the kind of, you know what, um, I'd just like to hold your hand right now. Um, a lot easier than not doing that, if that makes sense. You know, Greg was talking about how the the tension increased until it it became something where you just can't not say something. Um, and having that to where, you know, you're, you're just not able to be dishonest with yourself for very long anymore is both, it's, it's an incredible inconvenience, but it also, it also gets you to some great places, I think. So that's, that's kind of where it was for us. Yeah. So just one night we were we were out at a restaurant and um this was the night before my birthday, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The night before my birthday, we're out at a restaurant and um you just kind of blurted it out. Yep. <laughs> and I was like, "You know what? So do I." Awesome. Yeah. And I think if memory serves me right, the phrase that Charlotte used was you're probably wondering why I'm here with no top on. <laughs> Something like that. Charlotte, why are you naked? It's your birthday. <laughs> but she's, she's like, uh, I just wanted to say that uh, I love you. And kind of her face went like sort of expecting me to just bolt out of the restaurant. But uh, there was just sort of like a moment where I was like, yeah, you know what? I love you too. And it was like, it just felt so natural, you know? But after that, there was like this wave of terror that came over me. Like, oh shit. You know, like <laughs> what happens now? Like, oh my God. Is Did we just say that to each other? Yeah. You know? I should also say that let it be known that this was three years after we first met, so I have to agree with Steph, FDR, worst, slowest <laughs> dating site ever. You know, if if you're not looking for something long-term, please look elsewhere. Not a hook yeah. place. And, and also, this is something that couples don't know who meet through FDR, that um, if you do ever have kids, you can choose any combination of F, D, and R 
as your so it can be Ferd Durf uh, as your kid's name. Uh, that's you know that's that's I think that's uh, you may have noticed that in the fine print of your membership agreement uh, when you signed up for the board. Uh, yes. So uh, I believe most of them are taken, but you can uh, uh, you can probably come up with or something like that. Well, uh, we'll have to go through a Swedish baby name book, and I'm I'm sure that we can find you know Ferd, something. Ferd. And so, so after that, it was it's just been a continuous process of sort of like just sort of doing things together and checking in with each other and seeing how we feel, and it's like a. You know, when you buy a house or you buy a car or something like that, there's like an intense period of negotiation with the salesman and then all the forms are signed and then you have the house, right? But what I've noticed with our relationship is like there's a continuous process of negotiation going on with us. It's just continuous ebb and flow between us like... Do you want to do this? Do you want to do that? How do you feel now? How do you feel now? And sort of that when that gets slack we notice it and when it gets too tight we notice it and um and when things are really like firing on all cylinders it just feels fantastic you know um uh wait we're not quite to the point where we answer each other's uh, complete each other's sentences and that sort of thing but it's like there are a lot of times when we're both sort of already kind of thinking the same things but expressing it in different ways and um just the just for myself just learning how a, a relationship is really just a continuous process of negotiation and renegotiation both with the self and with with your your other um has been a real learning experience for me. Um, and that that's even possible and that it's, um, there hasn't been one time, even once when I've just had to completely give in on a preference. Um, there've been times when there's been tensions around, uh, differing preferences when we're still learning to navigate each other. But, it always sort of comes out like where it's just a con- continuous dialogue kind of brings, you know, sort of brings your, your your sense of what you want into union with the other person. Um, um, and I know I'm talking in a lot of like sort of abstract and fuzzy language, but like a good example that would have been like the the last apartment we picked mm-hmm. you know um where um every apartment we went to there would be some things that she liked and some things that I didn't liked and something that I didn't and some things she did and we would just be constantly talking about those things and talking about those things and re sort of backtracking over the list of things in our own head that we wanted out of a out of a place to live and um what it would be for and well, how long we would be there and um how we felt in the places we were in and the differences between those things until we finally found the one place where most most of the things we were talking about we were 
agreeing on and um and it it didn't feel like there was like I'm giving this up so so you have to give that up or I'm getting this benefit so you have to get that benefit it wasn't like a it wasn't like a commercial transaction it was more like a sort of an organic sort of I, I don't know how to describe it um, well that's great and I, I've just I'm perfectly thrilled I think love is wonderful and uh, for those who haven't seen Greg and Charlotte and particularly knowing your history Greg about romance sexuality and the prickliness that you had uh, around that the tension that you had around that seeing the physical affection the cuddliness the kissing I mean it's just it's absolutely wonderful and uh, Izzy's quite thrilled to see it as well. <laughs> Look, they're doing Mikea. Mikea is Greek for kiss. So they, uh, they, she, she mentioned oh. that when you guys were kissing in the parking lot. Yeah, it's interesting because um, when we have uh, people to come up to visit, it's really fascinating to see. We were talking about this last night. Isabella wants everyone to do stuff together, right? So if we, if we, want, we went after dinner, we went skipping down the street uh, yesterday. And she kept circling back to make sure that we were all skipping in a pretty fascistic, I think fascistic is probably the right way of putting it. It was very much a lockstep. Very much a lockstep, yeah. Little commandant. <clears throat> little commandant, you know, you, you must go. <laughs> it's amazing how she does that with that little voice. She never even uh, heard German. Now is the time when we skip. Now is the time. Now is the time in Sprockets when we skip. And um, yeah, so she's really uh, interested in making sure that everyone is, uh, is including uh, in all of that. And people are asking for photos. So if you can post them on the board uh, of you guys as a couple, I think that would be great. And, uh, yeah, we just, we just came back from the mall today and uh, had a great deal of fun. So um, uh, it's wonderful. Uh, if you are a listener and you're coming through Toronto, please give us a ping. We always love to meet and greet and to, uh, to say hi to the listeners. So I uh, just wanted to mention that. Now, we've had people waiting, oh, so patiently, on the telephone or on Skype. Uh, James, is that right? We have a few people who have a question or two. Yes, we have. Sorry about that. We have somebody on the line. Uh, Brian. Hello, all Steph. Right. I'm all with the uh, buffalo ears. Go for it. Hi, can you hear me? Sure can. All right. Uh, I ironically had a question with regards to relationships. Uh, so my question, so my question revolves around um, a date I went on recently. Uh, it was a first date, and uh, I had, I was enjoying my conversation with this girl. Oh. A lot. Hey, listen, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is there a phone we could call you on? Your Skype sounds like it's coming from the dark side of the moon. Uh, I can try to f- find my phone. Where is it? Yeah, or just we make can sure you've got nothing else uploading or downloading. Can you? It's- hey, hey, Steph, how, uh, how just- is it? How, how's my audio coming through? Because he's coming through You're- fine on my end. Oh, is he right? Okay, sorry. Uh, keep, keep going. Uh, we'll we'll struggle through um, if that's the best. Yeah, James, you're coming through fine for me. But sorry, go ahead. Oh, that's uh, weird. We'll, okay, we'll come on. Oh, sure thing. So, um, I had a I, I had a date recently where generally it was going pretty well. I found the girl enthusiastic, um, uh, you know, somewhat intelligent at first and so forth. Um, but then we we got into a conversation about careers and goals and so forth and um she expressed some ambivalence about her own career and uh, i just tried to explore that with her but then it it kind of came out towards the end of the date that she was uh she was kind of on the philosophical end uh a lot very much an existentialist um which for me felt at the time I, i started to feel a little bit of 
uh, both sadness and frustration because uh, I was enjoying the date prior to finding to kind of discovering that about her. Um, anyhow, um, afterwards, I had talked with an, another friend of mine who's kind of who's who's very much into FDR. Uh, and we just kind of talked about, you know, what what would be the value and if I potentially wanted to uh, meet with this girl again. Um, uh, and we kind of thought about, you know, what is the best case scenario, particularly with somebody who might uh, be uh, kind of wrong, have some wrong ideas philosophically. Um, and, I mean, my, my perspective was if this is an individual who may not have been exposed to good i to to good arguments but may have a capacity for critical thinking that might you know that might be worth val uh there might be some value in trying to um get to know this person more and uh, exploring things like that and yeah i think uh i think i understand the question uh let me um put a few thoughts out there and then sure, you can sure. tell me if they're at all useful look i fully recognize the, the delicacy of this situation because there is for anybody who's got knowledge of philosophy or self-knowledge, there is the problem of what is my relationship with people who believe things that are false? Uh, That's a a very, very fundamental question. And I would uh, would argue this uh, from from this standpoint. I don't believe that if what we're doing here is quite new, and I, I think that it is, it's really just an extension or a expansion of consistency for stuff that was before, but if what we're doing here is quite new, then there is no empirical profit value or truth in condemning people for not knowing it already. Of course, right? Um, and there's a, uh, a story about, and I'm going to murder the story because it's half remembered, but there's a physicist who first, the first physicist to figure out why the sun burned. I think this was at some point in the 1930s. And he was sitting with his girlfriend. I think he later married her. He was sitting with his girlfriend uh, uh, and looking at the sunset. I know they were looking at the stars. They were looking at stars in a park, I think, at night. And he's like, she was like, oh, these stars are so pretty. And this is before he'd even published his paper, just after he'd figured it out. She said, oh, the stars are so pretty. And he said, yes, yes, they are. And I'm the only man alive who knows why they burn. And I thought that was just a wonderful thing, that moment where you've just realized something very powerful before the, the news gets out. And I think if we look at the world as a whole, the news of philosophy, as the Christians used to call it, the good news, the good news of philosophy is yet to to spread to the world as a whole. And so there's no reason why people would know what we know. And there's no reason why that they would be condemned. In fact, it would be unjust to condemn someone. If you're the first guy to invent penicillin, you don't sue doctors for not knowing about penicillin before you before they know about it, right? So I think that you really have to be uh, gentle and patient and uh, and careful and respectful when it comes to talking about philosophy with people. To a point. <laughs> Right. So it's uh, it's to a point. So people get stuck in con- condemning. Right. So libertarians will call people sheeple and so on. And they, they get mad at the people who don't get it. And this happens with a lot of groups. So you get stuck in the sort of condemnation standpoint. That's one. I think that's a problem. I, I look for the Aristotelian mean. Right. So you don't want to get stuck condemning people for just not knowing that taxation is forced and blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, you don't also want to be, you know, gentle Gandhi patient communicator for 10 years with the same person. Uh, that is, uh, you, you, I think you want to find a balance between those two, and that balance is complex. Knowing the volatility of what we talk about from an ethical standpoint, both in terms of what happens to people's perceptions of their political 
society, what happens to their perceptions of their educational society, their professional society, and most importantly, their family and friendship relationships, uh, romantic relationships. It is, it is a detonating philosophy that we bring to bear on the world. It, it, it shatters. It, uh, it sends the stars flying. It tears the moon from its orbit and hurls it into, the, uh, into Jupiter's pimple. It, uh, it does some really powerful things. So I think you know, wield that flamethrower with caution. Use it to light candles, not hair. <laughs> Actually, as you can see uh, from my picture, that's... <laughs> anyway, so I think uh, be patient. Uh, and I think there are two kinds of people, in my experience, after talking about all these <laughs> gradations, I'll say that there are two, two kinds of people. The first kind of person is the person who has just inherited a bunch of ideas that they kind of go for, uh, but they have never really thought them through, and they don't really know much about where they came from or what the arguments are behind them. They just kind of, well, you know, this is what my friends and family all believe. So I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or whatever it is that they, I'm an environmentalist uh, or whatever. And those people who have not really thought through the ideas or researched the ideas, but have kind of inherited them. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, Lord knows I haven't done any primary research on evolution, but I still accept it. Right. So uh, so there's nothing wrong with that. But those people, when presented with new and better arguments, um, more, more true arguments, are often more able to change their ideas and approaches and opinions. And I think that's good. On the other hand, there are other people who are ideologically committed to nonsense. And they've done the, quote, research and they've, you know, dug in and they've, they've rejected and they, they may be at promoting these viewpoints and so on. So somebody who's like a, a real socialist, you know, they, they vote socialist, they, they speak at socialist places, they read socialist books, they're really in there committed. They didn't just inherit it, uh, but they're actually committed to it. Those people are very hard, uh, very hard to change their minds. And so, uh, you know, so if this woman is a committed existentialist, like she studied the great French existentialists, I guess, all the way back to Dostoevsky, if you want to stretch it to a literary standpoint, they've studied the Sartre and, and all of that. Well, then that's going to be a, that's going to be a tough thing to dislodge. But uh, if it's just, you know, I read some, a little bit of existentialism in, coo- uh, in, in school and I thought it was pretty cool and there's some stuff that's, that's kind of neat. Existence precedes essence. Why not? But... Uh, those kinds of people can be easier to change. So it, it really comes down to how open is the person to arguments. And in one of the, in, 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 funnily enough, the best way, I think, to be open to arguments, uh, to have somebody else be open to arguments, is to be open to arguments yourself, right? So why not just ask the woman? It's like, well, I don't know much about existentialism or I don't agree with existentialism, but I'd love for you to make the case. You know, make the case for me. Help me to understand it. You know, let's let's spend some time. So rather than sort of pushing your views on her, and that's an inflammatory way of putting it, so I apologize for that, but but um, uh, listen, you know, listen, and uh, she may find limitations in her philosophy simply through trying to explain it to someone else. She might find areas where she doesn't understand stuff that she short, thought she did. You may be able to uh, ask a bunch of Socratic questions that can undo some of her beliefs, and uh, that's, I mean, when Christina, when I first met my wife, she was a deist, and I didn't, you know, ah, deist, patui, you know, it's like, oh, well, tell me more, you know, uh, how does this uh, work for you, and, and, you know, where do the beliefs come from, and because if, if you're going to have a relationship, you know, and of course the goal is, I think, uh, people are generally happier in functional relationships than, than elsewhere, if you're going to have a relationship, then the relationship can't be based on conclusions, it has to be based on a conversation, it has to be based on inquiry, it has to be based on curiosity, and that, I think, is a very, very powerful thing to bring to the table. And uh, so that would be my approach. If you, if you like the woman, uh, if you're attracted to the woman, then I would stay uh, in the conversation, just ask questions. And 
it's always interesting to watch. So when people come to the edge of their knowledge, and in philosophy, that doesn't take long for most people. When they come to the edge of their knowledge, the really, really key thing is to focus on what happens in that moment for the person, right? They come to the edge of their knowledge. You know, why is murder wrong? Why is theft wrong? Uh, why is it that you believe this this approach? Why, tell me why you believe that the state should do X, Y, and Z. Well, when they come to the edge of their knowledge, you want to see whether they are... What, where they are emotionally in that moment. And this is an important thing to know with yourself as well. Where are you emotionally at the moment that you come to the edge of your knowledge? Are you an intrepid explorer who's going to don the tilly wear and uh, <laughs> the, um, the uh, beekeeper's hat and, and plow on with the, uh, uh, what was his name that you said earlier? Tenzing. Tenzing. Oh, Tenzing. <laughs> the Sherpa. The Sherpa. Yeah, Tenzing. Uh, are you going to keep going? Uh, or do you turn around and get mad at the person who push, pushed you on the edge of the cliff? <laughs> hey, don't try and push me over into ignorance. I know everything. Uh, so I would say just watch where the person is. And it's not like, you know, condemn or praise, but just see where the person is and how they handle that discomfort or ambivalence of coming to the edge of their knowledge. I think that's really, really important. If you want to be an explorer, you have to take somebody out of the multiplex and see how they handle it, right? You have to take somebody out of the mall if you want to climb a mountain, you know, give them a set of stairs and see how they do. And uh, I think that's that would be my approach. And tell me if this uh, is uh, is useful to you at all. Yeah, that that is useful. Um, I, I think the, the subsequent question I'd want to ask is, and this is kind of what I discussed with my other friend, was um, let's say that this girl has a, a great genuine capacity for critical thinking, and you know, when she hears the right arguments, then she gets it. And, and this is something that, that like we can grow with or something. Um, the, 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 the thought that, uh, I have, or the question I kind of have at that point is if you're familiar with certain things and like, I mean, I, I guess like things like, I mean, RTR and, and some of these arguments, um, just with regards to UPB, I mean, yeah, as you mentioned, I mean, they're new and it's kind of like speaking a different, a new language to someone. And if, um, if, uh, you're, you're with somebody who, who's not familiar with it and you've kind of, ex- and you've done your own exploration with it for some time is the discrepancy in, uh, and you know, how much experience you have with it versus the other person, can that be an issue? Yeah, I, I think that's I think that's entirely correct. That uh, a lack of experience, a lack of knowledge, is nothing to condemn people for. In fact, it is something that, if you're interested in teaching people philosophy, and I think this occurs in every relationship, if you're interested in teaching, and it should be mutual, if you're interested in teaching, a lack of knowledge is an opportunity. You know, like an entrepreneur is looking to find a market need that people want to have filled. And then, you know, it's like if you're an entrepreneur, if you're selling uh, balloons, you want somebody who wants a balloon. <laughs> I mean, so a, a lack of balloonness is something that you want as a balloon seller. And so somebody's lack of knowledge of philosophy is a great opportunity to to bring them into the realm of reason and evidence and all those kinds of good things. So I think that's, you know, that's great. Uh, it is a challenge because it is volatile and it is a little bit like hot wiring the uh, space shuttle while it's re-entering the atmosphere. So it can be a bit challenging, but um, I think it's a, it's a great opportunity. Now, I, I will say where I think the 
the um, the make or break is for me. I'm not going to say this is any kind of absolute, but this is where it would be for me. And I can speak from experience. I have uh, I was attracted to two women when I was younger. One turned out to be a Christian and one turned out to be a, a pretty hardcore socialist list. And I did not pursue the relationship uh, after conversations with them about their ideology uh, because of that, uh, even though I was very attracted. And there was, a, I think, some mutual. Att- I knew that there was some mutual attraction and so on. Uh, and, that, and that is, if you are a committed anti-racist, you can't date a racist. I mean, you just can't. You, you just, I mean, if, if you are, you know, uh, uh, reasonable about Judaism, then you can't date an anti-Semite. If you are into equality, you can't date a Nazi. I mean, the, there is a moral line that you simply can't productively cross. Otherwise, love and, and virtue and values are meaningless. They don't mean anything. Then it's just like, uh, you know, that old song, the, the parting on the left is now the parting on the right. Then you're just saying, well, it's a matter of personal aesthetics. There's no meaning to do with anything. And there's nothing evil or wrong about racism or Nazism or sexism or whatever, right? So if you have values around, say, honesty in a relationship and you have attempted to communicate those values to somebody you're in a relationship or interested in being in a relationship with, and the person continues to be lying, false, manipulative, uh, and so on, well, then that relationship isn't going to work. The only way that relationship is going to work is if you give up your values or give up the relationship, I guess, not work in the second part. Fundamentally, and I've made this case before uh, a number of times, don't be in a relationship with someone whose values you define as immoral. I mean, you just can't. You just can't be in a relationship with someone whose values you define as immoral. Uh, and that, that's, to me, a very, a very fundamental thing. Now, that does make it tough if you're into... Um, a consistent application of the non-aggression principle. So I think that is um, uh, that that is really really fundamental. Don't compromise your values at that point. I mean, we all understand that if you're against racism, dating a member of the KKK would be ridiculous. It would mean that your values don't mean anything. And if your values don't mean anything, that's fine. I mean, I, I don't have a big problem with people whose values don't mean anything. Then just drop your values and date whoever you find hot. <laughs> you know, that's fine. But, but don't pretend to have the values and then not have them affect your relationships. That would be my my suggestion. All right. Um, yeah, I find kind of what you're saying pretty useful. I, I think it really, I have to explore these kind of things with her more to really figure out i mean it was just one date so uh to really figure out um where she how who she is and and how she approaches you know new ideas and and whether it's with honesty and or whether there's a sense of denial um i think that's something i need to think about but yeah thank you very much uh for answering my question it it was useful and uh i'll i'll be thinking about this yeah, and uh, I would, just, as Greg has mentioned, you know, the, the important thing is to ask yourself first, not the other person. What was your experience of the conversation? What was your experience of her openness? Uh, did you feel tension or defensiveness in the other person? Now, introspection is not an absolute science. This is not like, well, now I know for sure that, blah, blah, right? Because we don't want to turn our feelings into our cognitive and epistemological masters. But uh, it is the first place to start because trusting your instincts is very, very important. And, uh, you know, uh, with my own instincts, I I like what uh, Gorbachev and Reagan used to talk about in terms of the non-proliferation treaty. Trust, but verify. <laughs> right. So trust your instincts, but uh, but verify them. And, and you will find over time that your verification needs less and less. Right. If you've been right in your instincts 100 times, there's no need to go back to the methodology you had for number one at number 101. 
So, um, yeah, I would trust your feelings uh, and, and verify at this point and then get used to trusting them more and more and needing to verify less and less, if that makes any sense. But, uh, but clearly, uh, there is a, a great deal to this date. I mean, you're, you're talking about this. It's very important to you. I would certainly trust your instinct of attractiveness and um, uh, give, give the woman as much of a, a chance as, as possible and be as positive as possible about what you want to bring to the relationship philosophically. And uh, I really, really hope that uh, it works out. Yes, that that's yeah. I, I like you said. I, I do need to watch myself and see how my feelings and instincts are. And so far, um, they're still more curious uh, about her. So so yeah, I will certainly uh, yeah think about this more and yeah explore more. So thank you, Steph. You're very welcome. And uh, if you get a chance, uh, always curious to know uh, to know how it goes. So uh, <laughs> let me know if you can. All right. Thank you. All right. So. Let's go to the next caller. Yeah, whoever if they're on the call wanted to talk, to go ahead and speak up. You may want to speak up a little more. Make sure you're not muted. While we're waiting, uh, people came up with names for your children, which uh, would probably be, be, be helpful. Fanny Dolores Rearson. <laughs> Frank Daniel Richardson. Philip Downey Race. Philip, of course, with an F. Phoebe Danny Rand. <laughs> Forney Daneroy. Festive Dylan Rafferty. Fiona Devon Royal. Forrest Digger Rack. Franz Dillinger Radcliffe. And Fox Doyle Rimmington. And oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That last Fox one. Doyle Remington. That last one. Is... That sounds like a minor character in Wuthering Heights, I would say. <laughs> so that's wonderful. And to the person who posted that, I thoroughly applaud the amount of time and creativity you have lying around your keyboard. Uh, it's impressive. <laughs> it really, really is. All right. Uh, while we wait for the other caller, we have uh, said uh, somebody's typed into the uh, chat room. Let's see here. My girlfriend is very sort of middle of the road when it comes to politics, although she's not interested in it intellectually as I am. However, she has this very competitive sort of personality, which causes her to view any political discussion as some sort of contest. And though I try to pursue my arguments in as gentle and non-combative a way as I can, she inevitably ends up getting offended and thrashing about verbally because she feels like she's, quote, losing. Basically, she'll follow my line of reasoning till it pushes her into a corner, at which point she just switches to saying something like, why do you have to make me feel dumb like that? Anyway, so that's sort of my question, if you guys have time, as uh, I've, uh, uh, he said, as a, okay, so uh, my argument would be to stop talking about politics and start talking about family history. <laughs> Nobody ever saw that coming, right? Yes, um, this is not about politics. This is not about your arguments that you're having in the moment about X, Y, and Z political argument this is uh, about family history in my opinion on the part of your girlfriend and uh, it means that she may have had an intellectual parent who uh, cornered her and made her do stuff with endless arguments and so it's provoking a particular form of defense mechanism and so what i would do is stop talking about politics and start talking about family and this is a general advice you know people like to start with the stuff that is actually the effect of everything else right? people like to start with with politics and philosophy and morality and society and that shit is all the effect of from 99.9 percent of us that is all the effect 
of early family history and early family interactions, uh, both positive, negative, and neutral. And so if somebody was raised religious, there's really not much point talking about UPB until you get how they were raised religious. Because if they were raised religiously like man is born evil and needs the God to make him good, UPB is going to run into all of this resistance that has nothing to do with rational arguments. It has everything to do with that bomb in the brain stuff that goes on early in life. Remember, 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 remember the 5th of November. And remember that it is fairly well established scientifically at the moment that just about everybody's belief system is an ex post facto justification that they have the emotional experiences first and they come up with the rational arguments later. So if you stay at the surface level of rationality, you will continue to go round and round these defensive little non-progressive circles until you literally die in your own head. Uh, So just remember, go to early experiences, go to family, go to history, go to emotions, go to the true self, go deep. And then if you connect at that level, everything else flows from there. But if you try and do this sword fencing at the surface level, which is merely an effect of our early experiences, you will just keep doing the same thing until you either give up in frustration and your relationship takes perhaps an irretrievable blow uh, or your relationship just blows up because you get so sick and tired of that level of conflict. But do not engage at that level until you've learned more about the person uh, as an individual. So that would be my... Yeah, you can't reason someone out of a belief they haven't reasoned into. So find out where the beliefs come from before you um, you go to this. So yeah, ask about you know well, how was conflict handled in your family? My God, I mean what an I mean it sounds ridiculous to even say it because it's so obvious, but it certainly wasn't obvious to me until after I don't know a year of therapy. But uh, if you if you're in a relationship with someone, ask them, hey, or if you're interested, eh, you know how was conflict handled in your family? Well, we had a talking stick, we sat down, we reasoned about it, and we tried to work for a win-win situation. Hey, how you doing, right? I mean, that's, that's what you want. Uh, if it's like, well, I was screamed at, locked in the basement, and throwed, thrown old bones, well, then you're going to have some challenge because the person doesn't speak the language of negotiation, and that's going to be a problem. They're either going to have to learn that language, and you can't learn it. I think that's why therapy is so important. They're either going to have to learn that language, or the relationship isn't going to work because it's going to be win-lose. Is that what you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I was I was just going to say that's why I um kept repeating that word so often in in the the discussion uh, we had earlier is that for me uh relations relationships were all about um uh battles of attrition where ground was gained and lost and um through FDR and years of therapy uh, it just you know the idea of a relationship being a um, uh, a process of uh, of negotiation uh, where both parties could actually get something of benefit of positive reward out of just i mean was kind of a mind exploding concept for me it was always someone wins someone loses someone dominates someone submits you know um, and almost always it's the, the least rational and most aggressive person who wins, the person who makes the most noise, who releases the most emotional stink bombs, who's willing to go to the dirty fighting brinksmanship as soon as possible. That's the person who gets their way. And this is how virtue gets screwed and uh, lack of virtue tends to dominate. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that's one of the things I've certainly tried to butch up philosophy and virtue <laughs> consistently over the past few years, uh, you know, give it a bit of protein powder, have it uh, run up and down the Philly steps a few times and uh, to some Rocky music, you know, it's time to uh, denoodle that arm uh, as far as philosophy goes. So I hope that helps. 
Uh, James, did we have another caller? I've got some more questions in the chat room if, uh, if we don't. Hi, Steph. Hi. Hey, you can hear me. All right. Uh, yeah, I thought uh, I might just uh, kind of ramble on a little bit and then uh, see if you wanted to give me a response. I'm intrigued. Go on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I'm just uh, been through a few uh, little flips in my head uh, over the last uh, three months, maybe, or so. I started uh, listening to Noam Chomsky podcasts, and uh, uh, I'm the one who sent you that Chris Hedges book and everything. I have, and I'm, I didn't really realize, oh, yeah, these guys are socialists. That's how, you know, ignorant I am. <laughs> but uh, uh, I was uh, interested to see, you know, like how there's this kind of conflict uh, afoot that uh, I'm not very aware of. And uh, like the uh, I heard Noam Chomsky, you know, uh, saying uh, all these people, you know, uh, sort of dissing Hayek and uh, that sort of thing, you know, like, uh, and I've heard you uh, say, you know, oh, socialists, you know, in a very dismissive way. And I I realized, you know, like I, I, I realized a couple of things. Uh, one is that uh, I started wonder I started really doubting if I am able to think at all. And uh, if I, if, if I, or I'm just deluding myself that I'm a sort of uh, able to think because I I think that uh, for me like I do like the ideas so much on either side actually of the social socialist uh, free market you know uh, camps I guess if you want to do that and I, I I don't like joining a camp but I like to stay on. You know, ideally, I'd like to just stay on uh, keeping an open mind and not kind of be confirmed. And yet the people I look up to, like Noam Chomsky for one and you for another, are in different camps. And yet you seem to be encamped, you know, like you don't seem to just think, oh, well, they have some good points. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just painting people that way and. I stopped uh, posting on the boards because I just thought, well, gee, what is this all about? You know, and you just go through the kind of like I hit some kind of wall and I started thinking, well, am I just responding emotionally? Like I really like you and I, I really like other people who have completely different ideas than you do. And uh, I think that is the case. And yet, uh, I don't know. Uh, I just think, uh, I would maybe I hope to grow into a person who has really thought things through for themselves and is not deluding themselves that they have thought things through when maybe they're just kind of siding with somebody on more of an emotional rather than an intellectual basis. And yet, you know, there, on the other other hand, you know, there's the uh, instinct, you know, like if you instinctively like someone, even though you may not have, you know, reasoned everything they say through, I think there is something valid in that, you know, just that kind of instinct to support somebody you just like, even though you don't really know every reason why and so on. And so uh, I've just kind of gone through this whole thing and I thought I should phone in and I'd like to get your 
you know, your your answer to it and just any reactions you had to it. No, that's a, a great, great thoughts. Uh, very, very interesting thoughts. Uh, uh, just a clarification. I don't, I mean, I've certainly had, I mean, not that he's living for this, but I certainly have had enormously high praise for Noam Chomsky uh, in, in the shows that I've done. Uh, I have some significant disagreements with him, but uh, Noam Chomsky is an anarchist, fundamentally. And uh, he comes from the Jewish left tradition of anarchism, which, you know, if anybody really wants to get the passport off them, I can go into in more detail. But uh, he comes from the left communalistic form of, of anarchism. But uh, I've always praised, I believe, I don't believe I've ever gone otherwise, I've always praised his incredibly incisive and powerful moral vitriol against U.S. foreign policy, against imperialism, against the dominant power of corporate interests in this mixed economy hellhole that we all struggle to survive in. And so I have a huge amount of respect for Noam Chomsky. Uh, he is uh, a, a piercing intellect. He is a strangely compelling Stephen Wright style understated speaker. It's almost like he doesn't quite have vocal cords, but he croaks along in his very compelling way. And I think that uh, that's very, very powerful. Uh, what The work that he's done, I think, has been enormously beneficial to uh, to a lot of what uh, goes on. And I think he's he's notable in his absence. You know, and he's talked about this. He's, he's not going to get invited on CNN to discuss foreign policy, even though he is considered the most influ in influential intellectual alive today. And so his analysis of, of culture, his analysis of foreign policy, his analysis of political corruption, of a growing power of corporate interests is fantastic. I think his analysis of Adam Smith is great. His analysis of academia is very powerful and absolutely fascinating, the degree to which uh, academia uh, serves those in power. I think uh, he's, uh, he's a passionate and powerful moralist, and I, I have lots of good stuff to say about him. And uh, I would say that the majority of conclusions would be held in kind. Um, I'm sure that he would agree with the non-aggression principle, as any sane human being does. He may not agree with its consistent application, or it may take him a while, which I know is a ridiculous thing for me. He's going to come along, old, old gnome. But uh, I, I think that he does a, a incredible a work, and I think he makes he makes my job easier um, because he takes people outside the matrix of nationalism, right, and gives them that pill to have a look at their country as it is viewed from the outside. Harry Brown did the same thing. Noam Chomsky and Harry Brown and a few other intellectuals got absolutely hammered after 9-11 for their statement about blowback. And uh, so he was in good company with some very powerful libertarian thinkers. And uh, if... Um, if Murray Rothbard had been alive, they would have been throwing strail, uh, straw, gasoline, and, and matches under his pyre as well. So, uh, so yeah, I, I think he's got a lot of great stuff. I agree with you that someone you like uh, as a person or someone you like as a thinker can sweep you along too far. I certainly know this as being uh, a fan of Ayn Rand's for many years. Uh, and there is a tendency to want to ascribe omniscience and omnipotence to a particular thinker whose values we really like and whose arguments we really like because it's just easier. It's like, whew, this guy's been right 99% of the time. I'll give him the other percent because Lord knows if I have to evaluate everything he says, that's going to just take forever. Now, I both agree with and don't agree with that. Uh, I think that you do – I think that there has to be some credibility that is justly earned by a thinker who is consistent. 
I, I think I think that's that's fair. And that, that doesn't mean that you then become that person's slave and everything that person says is automatically right. But if if a thinker has been reasonable in his assumptions, has corrected his or her mistakes, uh, provides evidence and support for what he's arguing for and all this kinds of good stuff, then I think you can, in the long run, trust that person, right? Does that mean the next thing they say might not be incorrect? Well, no, of course, the next thing they say might be incorrect. I've certainly said incorrect things on this show, and I've worked as hard as I can to to correct things that I've made. I've done entire shows where I've read out people detailing the stuff that I've gotten wrong. Um, so I think in the, in the, if you trust the person's integrity to correct mistakes, then in the long run, what is accumulated, if they're open to and receiving criticism from the general public, then I think you can trust that it's going to smooth out in the long run. And I think that's fair. And I don't think that that was the case with people like Ayn Rand. So uh, I, I agree with you that it can be tricky in the short run to accept everything from a thinker who you really respect and like. But I think in the long run, it, if that person is self-critical and willing to own up to correct, admit and correct mistakes, then in the long run, uh, it is going to be something that, that, that is trustworthy. So I, I hope that that makes some kind of sense. But let me know what you think. Yeah, sure. That that sounds great, Staff. Uh, the the one thing that uh, uh, Chomsky and I think Hedges also say that I'd like to get your reaction on, uh, just because it is a kind of status thing, is that um, the state, uh, they look at the state anyway, apparently, as a kind of, a, you know, a control, a kind of a shepherd of the of the average person who might uh, theoretically protect the average person from the interests of the very powerful corporations and so on. And uh, in fact, they're not doing any kind of job. And of course, they would admit that that this is not happening. But potentially, they say uh, the state could be, at least it it allows for uh, people to vote even if the vote is a farce, it's still better, they say, than corporations where it's all tyranny. It's like if there's the boss and he tells you how it's going to be, and if you're not, if you don't like it, you're out of there. And he said they were defending government in that way, you know, like, uh, well, at least in theory you get a vote, in theory you get some little bit of influence and so on. And I just wondered if you had uh, any comments about their one of their uh, main ideas there. Well, I um, I think this is the great tragedy of people who get over-focused on politics. And if you've read Noam Chomsky's books, and I've probably read about, I don't know, three or four of his books, uh, he is a political junkie. I think there's just no way to avoid that. And this is as true of the Ron Paul people and the libertarian movement, They are, and it's true of, of, a lot of the Democrats and the Republicans. I mean, it, pick up the newspaper. I did this exercise a couple of years ago on a podcast. Pick up the newspaper, look through the stories, and see how many of the stories are about what the government does or what the government is about to do or who's going to be in control of the government or what the government didn't do or what's coming up for the government or what was passed in the government or what government is influencing this, that, or the other. And if you look at, you know, outside of entertainment and classifieds, it's all government all the time. Everything is about the government. And we as a culture, we as, a, as an entire civilization, the Western civilization is addicted to the chicken entrails, tea leaf reading analysis of the power of violent thugs. We are obsessed with it. We can't let it go. We can't stop examining it. And that in many ways is the source of the power that they have is our fascination with them. And what I would say to, to people in, in that situation is 
Because Noam Chomsky says, look, why are we spending this money on wars and not on health care? I mean, that's a typical leftist perspective. And I don't mean to that in a derogatory way. I mean, yeah, ideally, it'd be great if they spent the money on health care rather than wars. But we don't have any fucking say about that as individuals. We don't. Uh, it would be great if they didn't spend the next generation into financial slavery. We don't have any say about that. It would be great if they stopped the war on drugs. We don't have any say about that. It would be great if in the U.S. every school didn't allow teachers to hit, their ch- to hit the, the, t- the students. But we don't have any say about all of that. And so the idea that, you know, it's the ring of power argument. Oh, Boromir says if we just get the ring and use it for good and blah, blah, blah. But that's how they keep you infested and involved and focused and obsessed and stalking this clusterfrack called state power. Oh, if only we could get the state to do this rather than that. Oh, it would be so much better. Oh, it would be so much better. And so you give the power to the state or you accept the power of the state in the hopes that you're going to sit in the driver's seat and steer that damn thing the way that you want it to go. And it is a delusion. It is a complete delusion. The state is never going to do what Noam Chomsky wants it to do. The state is never going to do what the majority wanted to do because the will of the majority is a delusion in a society where the majority is trained for 15 goddamn years or 12 years or 13 years by the state itself. And the state is never going to do what I want it to do and the state is never going to do what you want it to do. The state is going to follow the logic of violence. Always. The state is going to steal and bribe and pillage and control and rape and make war on its own citizens first and only then on foreigners or immigrants or drug dealers or drug users or people who don't pay taxes or people who don't get particular pieces of paper when they're putting an extension on their fucking garden shed or people who fish at the wrong time of year or people who climb fences that they're not supposed to climb or, 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 right? This, this infinite hydra of snapdragon human heart-eating monstrosity is never going to do anything other than follow the logic of violence. And the logic of violence is always the same. It is um, eat until death. Eat until death. That is the cycle of civilizations. That is the cycle of all self-abusive behavior. That is the cycle of all alcoholism, of all drug addiction or sex addiction. That is the cycle of overeating. Eat until death. Because it's trying to fill a hole that can't be filled, and that hole then expands to fill the entire world and takes the entire world down with it. You know, the state, it's like you, you paint a picture of the planet on the surface of the water, and then you pull a plug out from underneath, and it just swirls down. That is the logic of violence. It is always the same. It always will be the same. Eat until death. And the idea that we can get control of this violent beast and turn it towards virtue or turn it towards the service of the good or the service of the people is the great delusion. The state ends when we get fucking bored of it. The state ends not with a bang, but a yawn. Not with an eruption, but a whimper. With a, I just don't care anymore. I don't care. I'm not interested. I don't care. I'm not interested. And I still fight that battle sometimes because you get pulled back in can't help it sometimes but i i mean i read very little to, to do with politics it doesn't it doesn't matter so people want to solve things in the short run by saying let's get the state to do this rather than to do that and that's a lot of what chomsky argues 
let's get the money out of the military industrial complex and put it back into the failing public schools and into healthcare and into infrastructure and high speed fucking rails. <sighs> you know, that just means we're all in the train that goes faster into the cliff edge, <laughs> cliff wall. So that's where I would, uh, that's what I would say to people is like, uh, give up your desire to solve in the short run. You know, the, the fundamental definition of addiction in many ways is the attempt to solve problems only in the short run, right? So the guy who's uh, a cigarette smoker is solving his problem called addiction in the short run by having another cigarette. Feels better. Tension goes away. Nicotine is provided. Uh, the guy who's an overeater, you know, has another bag of Doritos and feels better. The alcoholic has a drink. He's solving his problems in the short run and not in the long run. We have to stand up and look over the horizon and stop trying to solve things in the short run. And political action is fundamentally about attempting to solve problems in the short run. And that is the fundamental definition, for me at least, of addiction. And it's something we just need to give up. But it is very, very hard to give that up. I hope that uh, makes some kind of sense. Yeah, it's 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 quite of a it's kind of an act of faith you need, I guess, uh, because you know you you have all these seeming solutions, uh, and yet you have to just let them go by. And it is so true about everything as government. I mean, I can see that for myself. You know, like uh, I've on the news and the TV lately, it's all been about. In Canada, you know, Princess William and uh, the visit of the royal couple, you know, it's like so unreal to me. And I was kind of happy when they went to Quebec and they, they were, the crowd was yelling at them, you are parasites and stuff, you know, good old French Canada, you know, they've got their own attitude. I kind of enjoyed that one. Yeah, and then, of course, they want to increase pay to public sector unions, right? Oh, the who? The French? Oh, yeah. I mean, the Quebecers, I mean, uh, they're only parasites because they're British. Our guys are great. <laughs> I mean, there's not a principled thing about people who take uh, through force through the state. Yeah, it's like, uh, you know, my team versus your team. My team is good and your team is bad. They may wear similar uniforms. but So the British royalty are parasites. But uh, we must stand up for the embattled French public sector, uh, Quebec public sector worker. So anyway, it's the same same sort of deal. Yeah. Well. Anyway, do you mind if we move on? Well, is that uh, is that a reasonable enough uh, yeah. and and uh, cast heavy enough response to your oh, <laughs> to yes. your question? Well, thank you, thank you very much. Thank you. All right. We got else. All right. What's your question, my friend? This uh, is your hi, show too. Uh, Steph, it's me, David. Uh, I've called before. Uh, how have you been? Uh, I've been very well. How have you been? Uh, I've been, uh, I've been great. Uh, just uh, here in Los Angeles, uh, attending some uh, events. Uh, but yeah, I, w I wanted to ask you a question that's been on my mind for a while now. And I wanted uh, this. Uh, the I, I typed out the question, so I'm just going to say it, uh, Steph. I think you probably answered this in a podcast, but I wanted to take, ask your take on accepting money through the government through uh, college. I ask this because, of course, I feel it's wrong to accept money that is taken from people by force. But on the other hand, if it's already stolen and it can go to, uh, towards someone that can help and help lessen the power of the state rather than someone who can just swell it, or does it enforce the status quo slash is hypocritical? I don't... Um... 
I don't think it matters. I mean, doesn't doesn't the money's in a state of nature. There's no ownership anymore, right? The money is stolen. Uh, it can't be returned to its original because right? it's it's you know it's like uh, it's like somebody took five coins of yours and threw it into a big pile of twelve million other coins, and you should get your five coins back. Well, you can't get your five points coins back. So you, the tax money that's taken from you is put into one big account or ten big accounts or whatever, but it's completely mixed up. With everyone else's, so there is no, you know, there is no issue. I and I, you know, to be honest with you, I don't think that um, uh, I don't think that libertarians care much about this. I think what they care about is accusations of hypocrisy, right? So what, what you know, there's this there was this thing that was floating around about uh, Ayn Rand took Medicare when she got lung cancer, and therefore the non-aggression principle is. <laughs> Is false, you know, like, like, and therefore, and uh, that's so crazy. I mean, it's insane. Of course, she'd had money stolen from her for many years through taxation and through her social security payments and blah, blah, blah. So, yeah, she, I don't know. I'm sure she took social security and I'm sure she took Medicare and who gives a shit? It, does, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what happens to the money after it's stolen. And anybody who focuses, I don't mean you, but anyone who focuses on the morality of whether libertarians take government money or not is completely bypassing the fact that the money is stolen in the first place. Mm-hmm. What, the, what everyone wants to do is to pole vault over the actual moral issue in the room, the gun in the room. And then they want to start fussing about how you tweak crap on the other side of it. Just vault right over that. right? So you've got a libertarian having money taken from him at gunpoint. And then as a moralist, someone comes riding in on his big shiny white steed and says, ha, huh, all right, well, as a moralist, I really feel that it's important to focus on how much money the libertarian is getting from the government. Well, what a load of pontificating crap. Let's focus on the theft first, yeah. right? Let's focus on the theft. Forget about what happens after the theft, because it's, otherwise it's, um, it's the tail wagging the dog. Because if you get rid of the theft, then the libertarian's problem vanishes completely. And if you change the libertarian's behavior to take or not take government money, the theft doesn't change at all. Mm. Doesn't change the damn thing. If the libertarian cashes in his check for 100 bucks for child support or whatever, or doesn't cash that check in, doesn't change a damn thing. But if you get rid of the gun in the room and you stop the initiation of force on the part of the state, then every problem that you're criticizing is solved. Mm. So I think uh, it's nonsense. Um, Well, what about from the I mean, I'm I'm pretty young, and you know, I I don't. Well, I I think I think about this all the time, and I think like, I think maybe it's like compensation for like the the public schooling I was forced to go to. But I don't know. I mean, I, I keep thinking that. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. What you say, you know, if you can, uh, you know, uh, forgive me for putting words in your mouth, right? So, someone. I mean, I get this question all the time, right? I mean, uh, uh, you, 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 your government picks up your garbage. And therefore, the non-aggression principle is, <laughs> is invalid. The, uh, the government delivers your water and, and, and you drink. And therefore, uh, your property rights are invalid, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, you know, my, my answer is always the same. By what conceivable moral standard are you focusing on my response to violence rather than the violence itself? By what conceivable standard is somebody focusing on my response to violence rather than the violence itself? It's so completely irrational and demented that it has nothing to do with a moral question, right? I, I refuse to be judged by people 
prior to their judgment of state force. I refuse. If somebody is so damn interested in the morality of right and wrong, then why don't go talk about the people who are starting wars and incarcerating millions of innocent people and torturing the brains of children in these ridiculous indoctrination camps called public schools? Mm. And why aren't they talking about the people selling kids off into debt slavery for the next generation or two? And why aren't they talking about people who are stealing billions, if not trillions of dollars from the public? Because to vault over that moral, festering, maggot-ridden corruption called the modern state and then focus on whether I'm cashing or you're cashing a $100 check is such a fundamental bucket of moral insanity that I can't even look at it without gagging. Mm, you do have a point there. A great point. For get that question. It doesn't matter. It's a way of paralyzing you. It's a way of making sure you don't speak up clearly and powerfully about true violations of the non-aggression principle. You know, imagine, imagine there's some neighborhood where the mafia is violently threatening everyone, indoctrinating the children, locking people up randomly, shooting people randomly. But uh, every uh, summer, they throw on a barbecue yeah. where you get cut-rate cut rate burgers. And as a moralist, you view this tyrannical predation, indoctrination, violence, imprisonment, incarceration, kidnapping, kneecap breaking. You view this, these mafiosos choking the life out of an entire community. And as a moralist, you ignore all of that and you slither like a snake up to the guy eating a cut-rate burger paid for with money stolen from him for which he is getting back far less than he paid. And you say, the only moral issue that I think can think of to deal with is whether you're eating that goddamn burger or not. Well, that's morally insane. Why not look at the mafia goons out there breaking the knees of adults and the minds of children? Yeah, yeah. yeah no, yeah. screw that. Screw it. Push those people away from you. They are um, very dangerous. Yeah, they only want to... And when those thoughts come, look, when those thoughts come into your head, I mean, you can't push away the thoughts in your head... But say, okay, so we look at the evils around the world, whether I cash this government check, which is largely, if not completely, composed of money that was stolen from me originally. How is it, how is it that this is the most important moral issue that I need to focus on? By what rational standard is the guy eating the mafia burger the most important, if not the only thing, that the moralist is focusing on? And if somebody can give me that argument, I would be fascinated to hear it, but I don't think it can be done. Yeah, I shouldn't be taking that kind of bullshit uh, no. at all. No, no, no. It, it's a way of having you stick your head up your own ass rather than speak your clear and true words into the public space, right? What, what people want to do to the true moralist is to inject self-doubt and self-criticism into the mind of the true moralist so that he ends up chasing his own tail rather than bringing down the true beasts of the world. And don't fall, for, don't fall into that trap. Do not fall into that trap. If you are a good man, and I, of course I believe as a listener you are very interested in virtue and a very good man. If you are a good man, then stand up and be a good man. And all of the wriggling, you know, if you've ever seen The Matrix, they put these little metallic centipedes into people uh, and so on. Don't, don't let people put those worms into your brain to quote Roger Waters. Yeah. <laughs> Don't let people put those worms into your brain because it's just a way of steering you clear of the mafia and having you focus on the stupid-ass burger that doesn't matter. 
Well, I was also thinking about, it's not really about what other people think. It's just, it's me, you know, this is coming from me. And it probably came from other people, you know, probably uh, making me think this. But, like, like you're saying that, like, the pro, you know, the, that through taxation that the money was taken from them. But what about if, if you don't produce something for society? I, I was thinking a lot about, like, the way that I can't get a job right now, and I want to produce something. I want to do something, but I can't. And, you know, that the gover- it's, I think that it's part of the government, you know, the, the, uh, dependent, the, the dependent underclass that's created. Um, what do you think that has some... Well, no, but that's like, okay, so let's, let's adjust the, ma- the mafia metaphor to say that the mafia controls all the jobs and only gives it to people who support the mafia and like the mafia. And then you're so goddamn hungry, you've got to go have that mafia burger with cheese because you're hungry. Mm. Well, you can't get a job because of the mafia. Why are you unemployed? Because of the state. Mm, yeah. Right? So you can't blame people for not producing when they're not allowed to produce, when it's illegal for them to produce. You know, why don't you go start a small business? Because you need 12,000 different forms to do so. You know, why don't you, uh, uh, you know, go and uh, offer to mow people's lawns? Because there's problems with this, that, and the other, I'm sure, about this sort of stuff, right? Or you can't live on that because government is driving prices so high uh, through inflation. So don't, uh, you know, don't blame the slaves. Don't blame the slaves. That's fundamental. Now... You can blame the slaves who keep telling you that you're not a slave, and you can blame the slaves who lick the boots of the masters, and you can blame the slaves who are in the pay of the masters. But that is something that requires proving, and that is certainly not the case with you. But um, no, if somebody's locked in the basement, uh, don't blame them for not having a tan. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks a lot, Steph, for for this. I I really needed to hear that. And uh, just thank you very much. Um, You've helped me out a lot. Yeah, well, I appreciate that. And, you know, hey, if you eat the Mafia burger and that gives you strength to put up a poster against the Mafia, I think that burger's gone to a good, uh, a good and happy resting place. Uh, of course, assuming it is a veggie burger. No animals were harmed in the making of this metaphor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Some cheese. Yeah, that's for sure. All right, well, uh, thank you very much, Steph, and uh, I hope you have a very, very great day. Oh, I appreciate it. Well, um, I've certainly missed, uh, missed all the callers. I really missed you guys over the last two weeks. So uh, it's really great to talk to everyone again. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going to, uh, I'm probably going to go to uh, Libertopia. I've been wanting to meet you in person, you know, at least one time, uh, you know, before I die, uh, because you've inspired me. You're not ill or anything, are you? So we're going to, yeah, let's do lunch. No, 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 no. I mean, I meant like, you know, dying of age, hopefully. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I I think uh, given that you sound younger than me, so uh, I think that I'll probably be uh, shuffling off this mortal coil sooner than you. But, um, yeah, listen, if you're in Libertopia, let me know where you're going to be. Uh, let's, let's sit down and do some lunch. All right. Uh, I'll, uh, like, uh, should I message you on the board or just over there? Yeah, message me on the board. Ping me on Skype. There's six different ways to get your uh, proboscis into my orifice. All right. And I'll do that. Uh, uh, but th- uh, thanks again. Uh, and, uh, yeah, I-, I loved hearing, just, just to comment on the other uh, listeners, uh, I loved hearing about the the topic on, you know, dealing with people that are, you know, uh, not, not just, you know, you know, cause I kind of felt I was that way as well, you know, not that I kind of judged people too quickly, but that, you know, I shouldn't just, you know, accept their beliefs, you know, once I've tried to reason with them. So. Yeah. Love and morality are two different sides of this. There's just two different ways of talking about the same thing. So yeah, I hope that, um, 
Yeah, look, look, people, uh, you know, uh, we we have uh, open house. Uh, come by, come to the barbecue, come to New York, come to Libertopia, um, you know, come to Porkfest if when you can. Uh, I mean, I must have uh, chatted with over 100 people at Porkfest at one time or another, and I think the pictures are all on <laughs> Facebook to prove it. So, uh, yes, it is uh, it is a real, real pleasure. So, um, yeah, stay in touch, and well, let's meet up when, you, when you're out there. All right, thank you very much. Uh, we'll see you later. All right. While we wait for the next caller, um, uh, I guess uh, Izzy, Izzy updates. Um, I guess we'll we'll turn to the third party documentarian crew, uh, who've now spent three days with uh, with Izzy and uh, the delicio Christina and uh, me. And um, she's Izzy is just past two and a half years old and um people i'm sure are a bit bored about uh, <laughs> hearing me uh, talk about her so if you'd like to share some of your thoughts uh, strengths and weaknesses pluses and minuses that you've seen yeah um i've i've found her to be really lovely um she is very she is very 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 energetic uh, more <laughs> energetic than just about any other child I, I can remember seeing but unlike those children uh her energy seems to be uh very focused so you know she wants to do something different uh every 5 minutes but for the 5 minutes that she is doing something uh she's intensely focused on it uh it's not like the kind of the dissociation and and mania that you get with uh children the way that i've seen Steph and Christina um, interacting with her, you know, they they kind of take it as their their job. I think I don't want to speak for them, but the, it, I've seen them take it as kind of their job to um, to facilitate her knowledge and facilitate her learning and facilitate her pleasure, um, rather than you know denying that pleasure. You know, I don't hear a lot of no, you can't do that. You know, don't do this, don't do that. And when there is, you know, um, please don't do this. And- Oh, yeah, we're back. Yay, we're back. All right, you were talking about... Uh, yeah, so uh, Izzy is, is at the point where, you know, you can... It's it's not quite a, a two-way conversation, but, you know, she, she's certainly very verbal, and she's, you know, telling you just about exactly uh, what's going on for her. You know, she'll say things like, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, I'm I'm happy. And it's it's one of those things... Yeah, <laughs> It's uh, it's one of those things that I've I've never actually heard um, a child verbalize what was going on for them, like how they were feeling. You know, you hear I want, but not I feel. And that's, you know, that's that's kind of uh, inverted um, with Isabella, which is is just wonderful. I couldn't, you know, imagine her childhood going better. I couldn't uh, imagine a better outcome for her. And I have never seen better parents in my life. Yeah, for for me, the thing that that strikes me the most um, interesting is um, how deliberative she is at uh, two and a half. Um, Something will happen to her, and periodically throughout the day, she'll run through that memory, she'll run through that experience in her mind, and she'll say things that were said at the time that that experience happened. And you can see the gears turning in her head, trying to understand it. Um, Like uh, she sees a car go fast and um, she'll stop periodically throughout the day and she'll say, that car was going really fast. Remember that car that was going really fast? And she'll say, I felt scared or I felt 
uh, happy or whatever it was that she felt at the time. And so it's sort of this kind of continuous process of integration of emotion and um, sensual experience and um, uh, intellectual understanding of it that's going on. Uh, that's that's the thing that's really struck me the most uh, interesting because you I don't know much about children but at at two and a half I didn't expect to see that in a child um, but I guess it, it sort of makes sense that you would um, the other thing that I think is interesting is that um, uh, and we talked about this last night that she um, she takes her cues from you and Christina, but in a different sort of way than I've seen other kids take. Um, like, um, like, like you were saying, she's, she's really inclusive and wants to include people in what she's doing, but she, um, she has a sense of confidence about who we are through, uh, not just her own experience of us, but also of, uh, of you two and she trusts your instincts about us as much as she trusts her own because she respects your authority but she respects your authority because um, she's never seen it misused she she understands uh, she's uh, at least from what I've seen um, she she it's a it's a natural sort of organic respect for that authority because she never she doesn't it's she doesn't follow orders right she doesn't she's I've, you've never given her an order and she wouldn't follow it if you did give it to her um it's again it's always this sort of negotiative process where you're expressing what your preferences are and she's expressing what her preferences are and eventually the two of you come to some sort of understanding uh and even though she's still uh, early in her sort of able to uh, ability to um, verbalize uh, her desires, her preferences, and to verbalize her negotiation, um, there's still a negotiation going on, um, and um, it just struck me as um, interesting how how strangely equal the relationship is. You know, even though you're in a position of authority and she recognizes that and she sort of desires that from you, mm-hmm. it um, helps buoy her own sense of confidence in herself. There's still a kind of equality between the two of you in that um, she also expects to be heard yeah. and respected. And have reasons right. for what, what's going on. Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, after uh, you know, offering her uh, endless candy if she's nice to visitors uh, clearly has worked. So that's uh, that's great. All right, do we have uh, uh, the other other caller in or uh, questions in the chat room? I don't know yet. I didn't see anyone say they wanted to call. Let me look around. 
Uh, somebody saying, Steph, I will work from August for one year in Argentina in an orphanage voluntarily so I don't get any money, but I'm massively sponsored by my German government, which pays big parts of the flights, the insurance, and even my place to live. It is, immoral to take, is it immoral to take that money as I don't appreciate the force the government used to get that money, uh, which they give me later on? No, uh, I don't think it's immoral. Again, uh, you may miss the part I was talking about earlier, uh, but no, you can listen to that again. No, listen, if you can go and work in an orphanage and you respect kids, hell, I'll subsidize you too. If you need any cash, let me know. I think that's a wonderful thing to uh, to be able to do. So yeah, do it uh, with a great and clear conscience. Uh, the world is, is solved by the just, fair, and equal treatment of children. And um, if you're part, part of that solution, there's no amount of government resources and money uh, that uh, <laughs> that I would object to. Ah, yes, the ethical gray area. Boom, 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 boom. So this is interesting. Yeah, so this uh, fellow wrote, um, basically, I like how people start sentences with the word basically. Uh, I prefer Fortran Ali. But basically, last October, I ordered a DVD box set online. When it arrived, it didn't work. At the time, for various reasons, I was unable to return it. Then after a while, it kind of slipped my mind when past the period that I'm allowed to return items. Recently, I brought another one from the same vendor, which works fine. The gray area I mentioned was that I was thinking of returning the older broken one and pretending it is the new one. On the one hand, it seems okay because the original item was faulty and I was entitled to return it for a refund. But on the other, if I returned it now, it would be using fraudulent premises. Not really sure how to resolve this one. That is a very, very interesting question because I kind of know what you mean. It's like, you know, no harm, no foul. I'm just returning a box set that's slightly different, but uh, it's exactly what I would have done with the other one and so on. But I think I'm going to have to come down on not great um, for the simple reason that the business that you are working with has reporting quarters. And so when they say you have 30 days to return an item, then or 60 or whatever, that's partly because they don't they have to close their books at some point. And if they said you have two years to return an item, then they wouldn't be able to close their books for two years because you might return it. And so, for, and this I think would be true in a free society as well. So, from an accounting standpoint, that's one of the reasons they put limitations on uh, on these things. If and and I would assume that there's I agree to these terms and conditions when you buy the item. I assume, and so you and you were aware of the time frame that you had to return the item, and so you had accepted that as a contract. The contract doesn't say, but you can substitute other things for what you're not returning. And so, I think that when you click on that. I accept this contract that that is kind of your word. That is your, now, if you didn't return the item, then you got benefits from that because you got to postpone returning the item, which is a dull and onerous process. I've had to do it a couple of times and, you know, you pack it up and take it to the post office and get the insurance. And, you know, it's, there's an hour of your time to return something. So you kind of got that hour back, uh, by not doing it. So I think that, um, uh, it's not it's not a huge moral issue. I don't think anyone's going to say you're a bad guy for returning this other thing. But it is definitely not sticking with the contract that you agreed to, which is a pretty voluntary free market contract as far as, you know, online ordering or whatever. Uh, so I think that my concern would be not just the minor ethics of the situation, but if you allow yourself this latitude, then what does it mean for you to have a contract in the future at any minor level? And I'm talking about not just legal or, or business contracts, but even like the social contracts that you, we all sort of implicitly have. Um, 
So is it going to make you, in a sense, lazier in the future by giving yourself this backdoor way of resolving contracts? Is it going to make you lazier in the future about fulfilling contracts? Uh, it's an interesting question. I don't know. Uh, the other thing, too, also comes to, you know, and this sounds very heavy handed, and I apologize for that. I don't consider this to be a major moral issue. But let's say that your DVD box set was 40 bucks. Well, what what price is your word? I'd go for more than 40 bucks. <laughs> and, you know, okay, if it's like um, Lord of the Rings on Blu-ray, well, yeah, obviously uh, it would be worth that. But, you know, this is, this is a, a, a word that you kind of gave to people you were buying stuff from. And if you kind of dodge it, then um, your word is worth a little bit less. Again, please understand, I'm not trying to say this is some big significant moral issue and I'm sort of not trying to wave away, uh, wave this sort of stuff. But uh, I would say that... Um, uh, I would hold out for a bigger price <laughs> for uh, for keeping your word myself. And I would just look and say, okay, well, this is what happens when I don't return stuff and I go outside the bounds of the contract. Well, I'm sort of I'm sort of stuck with it. A rental car. Yeah, a yeah, take off of the rental car. That's totally different because they get money from the government. So, aha, you can justify everything with anarchism. So. Uh, so anyway, I hope that uh, I hope that again. Look at me if you send if you send it back or not. It's not it's not a big moral issue. I think. I mean, I think there's a minor matter of integrity here that would be. Uh... You you no see see this says uh, I just kind of felt like I was losing out by being ethical, financial at least. No, because because you didn't return it in the time frame, right? Yeah, the agreement is you've got sixty days to return it or whatever. If you do, if you don't return it in the sixty days, that's something you knew ahead of time going in you postponed it and i tell you the reason that you postponed it was because i guarantee you subconsciously or consciously the reason you postponed it was because you were going to give yourself an out like this and and if you weren't going to give yourself an out like this then you would have returned it on time that's really my my sort of issue they give you it's not so much the past as the future that really matters so uh, so I would uh, say, look, you just say to yourself, look, I'm going to stick by my online contracts or stick by my contracts. And that way I know the next time I get something that's broken, that if I don't return it on time, I'm simply going to lose that money. And that's going to make you return it on time and not give yourself that out of, well, I'll return something else and get a refund and blah, blah, blah. So anyway, I hope that. Uh, and obviously um, you trust the vendor because you ordered from them again. So it's not like you think the vendor's out to cheat you or something. So you're not in a state of nature with the vendor. So, so that would be my, uh, my approach. Yeah, if we give ourselves out, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, it does tend to erode things in the future. And look, I mean, again, I don't want to be Mr. Finger-wagging moralist or anything like that because this is not a big deal. But these, you know, these, these little details are, are important, I think, in, in the big picture of other more important moral decisions you may have to make. Uh, I found your podcast on pretension to be very interesting and relevant to my own life. I was wondering if you ever feel that other people are pretentious and how you deal with it. Oh, <laughs> he's really lifting the lid off the volcano on this one. Oh, as a philosophical moralist, do I ever feel that other people are pretentious about morality, say, or about virtue? Do I ever feel that people have moral attitudes that can't be sustained logically, that they pretend are? <laughs> And fortunately, we have people here to scrape bits of my brain off the ceiling and attempt to reassemble them in some sort of coherent fashion. Um, yeah. Look, pretension as well is, is a false self flair to find other false selves, right? So, you, you, you know, obvious pretentious stuff. So some, I don't know, to take a cliche, so some 
black black kid in his gang bang a rapper outfit. Well, uh, he's not out there to meet other black computer programmers or white computer programmers. He's out there to, frankly, take their lunch money. No, <laughs> he's out there to send out this false self thing, right? And, you know, not to pick on blacks, uh, a, a, a Hasidic Jew with his corkscrew hairdo coming down the side and his wife in a burlap sack. Well, he's also putting out false self flares to find other people. That's what turbans are for. That's what um, soldiers' yes. uniforms are for. And uh, that's what uh, uh, sports teams are for. And these are, you understand, these are all big false self flares that you shoot up to find other false selves. And so pretension, so some emo kid, right? Uh, you know, some goth kid, they're sending out their false self flares to find other false selves, to make sure that they don't actually bump into somebody who's got a real identity that makes them feel as empty as they actually are, because that is truly terrifying for people. Uh, and, um, I'm going to not, I don't think I'll sing it. I don't think I'll sing it because it's a really hard song to sing, but let me get, uh, a, a very, a good song. It's, it's an old song called how soon is now. Let me get the lyrics here. It's always struck me as a very, very important, um, a song in terms of this false self thing. So he, he, he says, uh, there's a club, if you'd like to go, you could meet someone who really loves you. So you go, and you stand on your own, and you leave on your own, and you go home, and you cry, and you want to die. And that kind of desperation and loneliness, uh, this is a very, um, it's a very emo song, or it's a very gothy kind of song. And it's a very good song, in my opinion. Uh, it's, it's very, uh, it's... Um, its melody is very, very interesting and very different. It's almost Eastern in some ways. Uh, this is from The Smiths and uh, highly, highly recommended. I don't know much about The Smiths, uh, but the, this song is, uh, I, think, I think, very good. And um, what I like about that is this, uh, this desperation. And there is a pretentiousness uh, about most people that I've known who are Smiths fans. Oh, my God, I got Smiths fans writing in. That's fair. I mean, this is unfortunately what I've seen. Uh, called How Soon Is Now. Uh, you may know it. How, uh, how can you say I go about things the wrong way? I am human and I need to be loved just like anybody else does. It's a, it's a really good song. He's got a nice, uh, a nice um, mournful crypt keeper voice. And um, well worth, sorry? Uh, Morrissey. Yeah, the Smiths is the band. Morrissey's the, did I call him someone else? Morrison? What did they call him? No. Morrissey. Oh, I didn't realize he was. Yeah, he was. He, he's a solo artist now, but he was in a band called the uh, Smiths before. And um, yeah, so this is a kind of pretension. So you 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 got um, uh, you got mohawks, you got nose rings, you got tattoos, you've got you know bikers with uh, a beard full of bees, uh, you've got uh, pirates, you've got. I mean, you got just about everyone has this costume by which they're attempting to filter out people who have any kind of real identity and fit like jigsaw puzzle pieces together with other empty souls because the most terrifying thing for an empty soul to encounter is a rich and deep soul uh that is sunlight to vampires literally <laughs> and uh so the pretension is just another way of doing that verbally right so um uh that's uh, uh that's what's so chilling about these kinds of people so oh yeah i also wanted to mention for those who have netflix um, yeah, it's interesting, right? So I was thinking that it might be kind of cool. I don't get to go out uh, <laughs> these days, the last two and a half years. And um, 
I was I would like to do like every couple of weeks maybe we can see a film that's on Netflix and available to at least a North American audience. And we could watch a movie and then we could get together and talk about it because um, I like doing movie reviews, but I also want to get other people's views in it. And I would strongly, strongly suggest Rachel Gets Married with uh, Anne Hathaway. I thought it was just her doing aerobics in a catsuit, but apparently it was not not the case. Uh, so it wasn't as much fun in slow motion as I was hoping. But um, uh, I would strongly suggest Rachel Get Married. Uh, Rachel Gets Married. Uh, so um, uh, if you want to watch it, maybe we can get together this week. I'll post something on the board. Uh, Rachel Getting Married. Sorry, Rachel Getting Married. Uh, really, really interesting film. If you can bypass some of the more self-indulgent musical interludes. It's an interesting film. Acting-wise, I think is good. Script-wise, script is a bit skimpy, but uh, well worth It's Sidney Lumet's daughter. Uh, it's her first published screenplay. It's interesting because it's very musically heavy uh, and um, I think a bit indulgent that way, but worth uh, getting past. Oh, yeah, I thought I liked the music, but it just went on a bit long. But the soundtrack is actually all the music that's played in the movie. They don't have a separate soundtrack that they layer in, which I thought was interesting. But, um, yeah, Rachel Getting Married, I think, is a really fascinating family film, a film about family uh, and uh, dysfunction. So I would like to uh, have some talk. I'd like to talk about it, but I don't want to just do a solo on it. I'd like to do a sort of conversation on it. So check out Rachel Getting Married. It's available on uh, Netflix. And um, we'll set up a time later this week to to have a talk about it after you've seen it. I think it's really uh, an interesting film, and I'd like to do uh, I'd like to do that a little bit more more often. Um, I am not watching a lot of films these days because by the end of the night I'm just too wiped. But uh, I'd le- certainly like to set aside time, and maybe we can set up a thread on the board where people can suggest uh, films to watch because I think that would be great. They also have a lot of really great foreign films mm-hmm. as well, like films from the United States <laughs> <laughs> with subtitles for a lot of the southern films, which is pretty cool. Uh, the Bicycle Thief would be an interesting film to see uh, and talk I about. I Am Love would be I Am Love. And you guys really liked the one with Brad Pitt, right? Uh, Tree of Life. Tree of Life. Yeah, Tree of Life. So maybe we can do that one as well. All right. Uh, I just want to see if we had, uh, uh, James, we have anybody else? So we're rounding up the hour, but if anybody was waiting, I'd hate to miss. Uh, nobody in the call right now. I mean, I did a last shout out for uh, questions so if anyone's got any questions last minute questions in the chat this is the time oh yeah who's afraid of virginia wolf is a, a very powerful film and uh interestingly enough uh, as my one of my professors pointed out when i was pursuing my english degree the lead characters in who's afraid of virginia wolf by edward albee who recently had a play on broadway called the goat about a man having an affair with yeah. Anyway, he pointed out that uh, the lead character's names are George and Martha, just like George and Martha Washington, that he's saying this is where the American dream has come to. And uh, that uh, horror is uh, that vitriol is only matched, I think, in American literature or American theater by the terrifying dissociation of Willie Loman in uh, Death of a Salesman, which is truly, truly the uh, collapse of the false self film. Long Day's Journey Into Night is also a kind of terrifying, so terrifying that he wouldn't, he wouldn't actually allow it to be produced until 10 years after his death. And uh, when he came out of writing it, his wife said he was just a complete wreck. Uh, and I can understand why. Uh, and then the week after, maybe we can do um, a, a super why, um, a Jack of the Beanstalk, which is one of my daughter's favorite films. And we can talk about the implications of that. And 
why there's not enough swearing in George Carlin's rendition of Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, these are things that we could uh, maybe review. What sort of activism do you support, Steph? I was thinking of going to a 4th of July celebrations and pointing out the futility of celebrating replacing one tyrannical government with another. Uh, well, uh, let's see. Uh, the other day, uh, I was chatting with a parent who uh, mentioned that he spanked his kid. So the kind of activism that I would to recommend is to say, hey, that's really not a very good idea. And that's not just my opinion. The scientific studies show that spanking increases aggression and reduces IQ points significantly. And there are far, far, not even better, but less destructive ways and positive ways to uh, interact with your kids. And at times where they need to be restrained, there's ways to do it that are not uh, violent in any way, shape or form and have a conversation. And I sent him to nospank.net and uh, uh, you can do that kind of stuff. Uh, so I think that uh, you don't have to wait for the 4th of July and for drunken patriotic crowds who aren't going to listen to what you have to say, but um, you can see wherever there's aggression occurring against children and try and have a positive conversation, uh, as positive as you can manage with the uh, with the parents, and see if you can open them up to non-aggressive ways of parenting. I think that is my favorite form of uh, of activism. Other times, <laughs> what you can do is I was at a, a cafe uh, the other day with Izzy, and uh, there was you know because she likes her, um, I think it's uh, she, not chai latte, soy latte. She's a big fan of, uh, for obvious reasons, but. Um, uh, we were next to a table uh, with uh, six. Uh, they were all women. Uh, it doesn't have to be, I guess. But uh, And these women were, uh, this was, I think, uh, it was a couple of days ago. And these women were all sighing extremely loudly about what an absolute freaking, and I use the word freaking as a synonym, <laughs> freaking relief it was that summer was here and they got away from the bratty kids in their classrooms. And this conversation went on for quite some time. And um, they're all teachers, all public school teachers uh, talking about, oh, my God, uh, finally away from these bratty kids with their problems and their disobedience and their this and their that, you know, because, you know, when you incarcerate children in public schools and bore them to tears and trap them on sunny days in classrooms with boring people uh, who don't like them. Somehow they seem not to react positively to the experience. It is a complete mystery, but at least these teachers were entirely sure about whose fault it was and uh, how that they absolutely deserved this time away from these terrible kids. And um, I decided not to be an activist <laughs> in that moment. Um, because my daughter was there and, uh, <laughs> I don't want to expose her to that kind of language just yet. So, um, yeah, uh, that's, that's, um, you know, and look, y'all have, uh, y'all have your friends and family, uh, and there's, um, my parenting can be improved. Everybody's parenting can be improved. And, um, uh, so whatever you can do to help parents be better, give them books on parental effectiveness training or other, you know, send them to nospank.net so that they're aware of what aggression does, uh, verbal aggression and spanking, physical aggression, what it does 
to the kids' development, you know, as Dr. Phil says, appeal to their selfishness, right? Say, well, look, if you impose your power on your child when your child is four, what is your child going to do when they're 14 and bigger than you? Well, they're just going to impose their power right back because that's what you've taught them to do. So um, the more peace you invest early on, the more peace you reap later on. And uh, so I would, uh, yeah, suggest that kind of stuff. I mean, it is... um, I think it is a very ugly time in parenting if you've been aggressive when the kids become teenagers. There's a latency period, like, you know, sort of 6 to 11 or whatever, or puberty, which for some kids apparently seems to be about 6 these days. But uh, there's a latency period where things seem to be going okay. But when those hormones and um, muscles kick in, uh, it's a whole different story. So hopefully parents uh, will uh, work in the present with that future in mind. So. Yeah, look, it's, I mean, it's, it's tough. I was watching a Dr. Phil the other day um, called Violent Kids. It was called Violent Kids. And uh, in it, there was a kid who um, had put a kitten into a bag and stomped on the bag until he broke its net and neck and done other violent things. And uh, there were hints, significant hints of abuse on the part of the mother who herself had been raised, I think, in an abusive situation. And uh, what did Dr. Phil said? He said, uh, well, uh, I got to tell you, parents, uh, you're not doing anything to cause this, but there's things that you can do to make it better. We don't know where this level of aggression comes from in children. Well, I don't believe that is the latest science, at least that I have read and uh, and uh, and talked about. So it is, uh, look, it's... Um, it's tough. Like, I can understand where he's coming from. I mean, if you tell the kids, if you tell the parents the truth, at least as I see it, which, of course, is not with Dr. Phil's expertise. Uh, but if you uh, tell the parents the truth as I see it, which is you have broken your child and it's going to take a hell of a long time to repair him and you're going to have to change um, because you have caused the situation, the likelihood is that they simply won't listen, will just leave and you can't get any help their way. Whereas if you put the burden on the kid or on some mysterious genetic who knows what, then the kids may, the parents may stay around enough to modify the behavior. So I can understand kind of where they're coming from, but um, I don't particularly agree. But, you know, what do I know? I'm just a podcaster. But uh, that is and, – and the other thing too, like there was this guy from Harvard, this guy – I think he was a – he's like the foremost – he was the head of psychological association in the U.S., foremost expert on child rearing. And uh, he said, uh, well, you need to have pretend tantrums with your kid to, to cure them of tantrums. You know, like you, you say, have a tantrum now and you praise them for having a tantrum so that then it's less serious when they have a tantrum. Next. I don't know. It just seems kind of crazy. And he's got a book called uh, How to Raise the Defiant Child. How to raise the defiant child. See, it's the child who's defiant. It's not the parent who's dysfunctional. It's the child. You always got to put the burden on the child uh, because the children don't buy the books so they can be sacrificed, right? I'm not saying he's mercenary in terms of money. I'm just saying that this is the reality of how people approach it. And, you know, imagine if I wrote a marriage manual called uh, how, to, um, how to Manage the Defiant Wife that you're yelling at and hitting, <laughs> right? I mean, how to manage the defiant wife. Well, uh, people would be as offended by that um, and with far greater reason as they are by the uh, taming of the true by Shakespeare. Uh, so again, it's just a, a ways to, uh, uh, it's just ways to see where the society is in terms of um, putting responsibility on the parents for parenting rather than the kids for being difficult or defiant. But of course, uh, we know this from, what is it now, the statistics, one in 10 American uh, Americans are on antidepressants of some kind because it's got nothing to do with self-knowledge or philosophy or integrity or virtue or abuse uh, or immorality. Uh, none of those things, which traditionally were the answers to uh, at least non-biologically based unhappiness. Now it's brain chemistry. Now it's you need more of this and less of that, none of which is um, valid 
according to any kind of science. There is no brain chemistry a problem that is addressed by these drugs, these, um, these drugs. And uh, there have actually been some studies recently uh, because they found that placebos are about 80% as effective as these drugs. And so there's been some question about the 20%. But what they found when they do these uh, antidepressant studies or these um, uh, psychoactive drug studies is that the drugs come with side effects. And so people know that they're getting the drugs. And the people who are just getting the sugar pills, there are no side effects. And when they substitute drugs that give you mimicked side effects like dry mouth, the, it almost completely vanishes the difference between placebos and these drugs. So, um, and of course, these drugs are being hit uh, harder and harder towards kids, and they're almost all being prescribed off-label, which means they haven't been tested on children. In other words, they've been tested to some degree on adults, and they do produce things like suicidality, murderous rages, and brain shrinkage, but, you know, that's okay. But we'll, uh, we'll prescribe them to children um, without testing them on children on developing brains and developing minds and developing bodies without any long-term studies, because children are not people in our society. Children still are not people. And until they are people, the world will just continue to get worse and worse and worse. So, yeah, whenever I see anyway, oh sorry, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> I was going to say whenever I I saw those commercials, I always came to mind that whenever I saw those side effects like suicidality or aggression, you know, when you know to sort of help someone with their depression, I just think you're basically with those kinds of people just loosening the depression enough so they can go from inert to like that dangerous active stage you know that's like the theory i run with anyways that that makes sense (laughs) it certainly does charlotte you had something you wanted yeah i i was going to say like people seem to have more compunction about testing uh medicines and foodstuffs and things on animals than they do on you know prescribing untested uh, foodstuffs and pills and things like that to, you know, actual children who we know are sentient, you know, and we know that, you know, they they have an enhanced capacity or they would have an enhanced capacity for reasoning and things like that that they might never have uh, compared to these drugs. Yeah, I mean, this is, of course, is a a huge topic. Uh, So, yeah. Last, last year available in, was 2005, 27 million Americans, 10% were taking antidepressants. 10% of the population taking antidepressants. Uh, uh, and that is really, really quite astounding. Among the users of antidepressants, the percentage receiving psychotherapy fell from 31.5% to less than 20%. Because, you know, listening to somebody for 15 minutes and writing them a pill prescription is a lot, makes you a lot richer than listening to somebody for an hour talk about their actual Life issues, and this, I think, has doubled over the last 10 years or something. Anyway, it's just all too uh, ridiculous, horrifying, and depressing for words. I think I need a pill. Uh, but, um, yeah, it is, uh, it is truly wretched. And, uh, I mean, I could go on and on about this, and so I will just do one little, I know we're over, but we'll do one, one short little speech about something I've been thinking about lately. Um, there is a segment of the economy that is... Very, very powerful. I've been sort of thinking about it over the last couple of weeks for a variety of reasons. Segment of the economy that's very, very powerful. And that segment of the economy is uh, no one is to blame. No one is to blame. And people will pay a lot for that stamp on their forehead called no one is to blame. So if you're messed up, 
nobody wants to know that it may be your parents who have some significant cause, or your teachers, or your priests. No one is to blame. Who's to blame for the national debt? No one's to blame. You can't find anybody who's responsible. No one's to blame. So the stimulus didn't work, really. But it did add trillions of dollars of debt. So who's to blame? Who's to blame for making that multi-trillion dollar mistake? Well, nobody. If you're depressed, is it because of your life choices? Is it because of your virtue? Is it because of your integrity or lack thereof? Is it because you have done bad things in your life? Is it because you're an abusive jerk at work or you scream at your kids or you hit your girlfriend? Is that why you're depressed? No, it's brain chemistry, you see. It's not, not, you're not to blame. You're not to blame. These parents of uh, children who murder helpless kittens, uh, no, they're not to blame. It's uh, just some mysterious X factor. There's no, no, one, no one's to blame. No one's to blame. And the reason why, I mean, other than the obvious economic reasons, but the reasons why these antidepressants are taking the place of uh, psychotherapy is because, I would argue, that the science is becoming pretty conclusive that there are some people to blame for messed up kids. And it's their caregivers. That's, that's where the science leads. Don't blame me. Blame the science. And, yeah, no one is to blame. No one is to blame. Why, oh, why did Arabs attack New York on September the 11th? Because they're evil. Because they hate us for our freedoms. No one's, no one's to blame. It's not because we've been, we, <laughs> because American government has been murdering them by the hundreds of thousands for decades or overturning their legitimately elected governments. No, see, no one, no one is to blame. No one is to blame. Why are children bored in school? Is it because the schools are wretched, terrible, the teachers are distracted and dying for their summers off, don't like their charges, because the divorce rate went up by 300% in the 1970s, that children are growing up with the horrifying view of their emotionally stunted parents who got divorced? No! It's because the children have some brain chemical problem. No one's to blame! That's why we have to drug the kid. We're just fixing a problem. I mean, if you get an infection, if you, if you get a cold, it's not like you're to blame. And if the kids have bad brain chemistry, it's not like anyone's to blame. Nobody's responsible for anything. Nobody's responsible for everything. And people will pay a lot of money, a desperate, hideous, vile, revolting amount of money to escape the weight of moral responsibility. But that moral responsibility does exist, still exists. So where are we going to put it? Well, we're always going to put it on the helpless, right? Always going to put it. How to parent the defiant child? The child is defiant. The child has oppositional defiant disorder, which means he don't lack authority. Well... (laughs) If the teachers I was listening to were any indication, authority doesn't really like them. And I think that came first. <laughs> but people will sell their own freaking kidneys to get that stamp called no one is to blame. No one is to blame. And until moral ownership is accepted, 
things will continue to get worse and worse because we'll keep shoveling the blame onto children. Now, we may not shovel that blame onto children like they're bad, but we may shovel that blame onto their physiology where we imagine there are these ailments that they suffer from, ADHD, ADD, ODD. Bad humorous, yeah, that's right. I mean, it, it is the modern equivalent of demonic possession, right? The demons didn't exist, and neither does bad brain chemistry. What does exist is genes that are triggered by violence, as we know scientifically. What does exist is children being herded into these brain and soul-sucking public schools from so often broken homes. where they're taught nonsense and trivia, where they are so often bullied and frightened, which we would never accept for adults. We would never accept that for legions of adults, millions of adults, they get assigned their retarded occupations, some manual labor, they're herded into these camps and they have to work there and they, have, they can't leave. That would be shocking. That would be appalling. But we can do it to kids, you see, because kids aren't people. You know, we can, we can put them into these, you know, the choices that we would never relinquish as adults, we'll strip from children and feel like we're doing good of all things. We will strip them of their choices about how they want to be educated, whether they want to be educated in this kind of system. We'll strip them of those choices. We'll strip them of the choices of what subjects they want to be educated in. We'll strip them of their choice of who they want to be educated by. And just herd them into these rooms, herd them into these rows, lock them in these rooms, half of whom are designed by experts in prison construction and prison architecture. You try applying those same rules to adults, and you have shock, horror. Every columnist in the world, pen would be flaming up the page in moral outrage. But you try not doing that to children, and you get shock and moral horror. Unschooling? (gasps) Homeschooling? (gasps) Children want to learn themselves and only need facilitation from adults? (gasps) Oh my God, we're losing control of the crops! We must gain control of the crops again! We must gain control of the livestock, because if we don't indoctrinate the livestock, we can't sit on our fat, pimply asses as farmers and sell them off. For money. So yeah, we've got uh, we've got some places to get to <laughs> as a culture and as a society. So yeah, when it comes to activism, it's a three word phrase: children are people. Children are people, and it's not even children are people too. It's children are people first. Children are people first. We can grant no right to an adult that we don't first examine in its applicability to children. And if we don't do that, if we continue to treat children as somewhere between pets and the homeless, then we continue to build on these shaky foundations of predatory childhoods. The world will continue to get worse because our technical knowledge has has often been talked about. Our technical knowledge, our knowledge of destruction and control and manipulation, couldn't have the modern Fed without computers. Our technological knowledge is far in excess of our moral consistency.
and we better damn well start catching up to our technology with our morality, or there will literally be hell to pay. And thank you, everybody, for your support. Thank you for your generosity. Freedomainradio.com forward slash donate is the place to go. Uh, We take Bitcoin, we take PayPal, and uh, I think somebody emailed me something that I'm afraid to open uh, that smells like a kidney. But uh, (laughs) we'll probably return that by pretending it's a DVD set. Uh, So thank you, everybody, so much. Have yourselves a wonderful, wonderful week. I really, really want to make sure that I leave you just with the positive message of of change, that we are going to win. Consistency is always going to win. Reason is always going to win. It doesn't seem so often at the times, and it may not seem so in the immediate future, and I don't think it is in the immediate future, but we are going to win. We may not live to see it, but the world that we're building, the world that is to come, is going to be here, and the greater is the heroism that is required and is the courage that is required the further off it is. So have great heart and great hope at what we are doing because there is no turning back when you step up the next ladder of morality and the personhood of children like the personhood of slaves like the personhood of women that came before like the personhood of every underappreciated and underrespected minority the personhood of children is the last step the greatest step and the irreversible step in the moral progress of mankind So thank you for everything that you're doing to help spread this message through this, through whatever it is that you're doing to do this in the future, as I have bellowed at Porkfest, does thank you.